From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in the realm of education. Today, in the first of a three-part series, we're trying to answer one big question. What have we learned about learning? We are confirming, you know, that there are no two brains that are identical. Your past experience in a very dynamic way is radically interplaying with what you're newly learning. That question guides the 2018 year-end issue of Kappen Magazine, now available nationwide. And this week, we partner with Kappen to highlight three acclaimed researchers who have set out to answer it. What I realized is that a lot of the world spends a lot of time looking at how the human brain learns, but very few groups were looking at how we should teach to take advantage of how the brain learns. Today in part one, we welcome researcher, author, and former teacher Tracy Tokohama Espinosa, whose latest book sets out to debunk dozens of so-called neuromyths, those false facts we're always hearing about the human brain. Neuromyths are bad because they break the first rule of education, which is the first rule of medicine, which is to do no harm. Telling people of a certain gender that they're not going to be as good at language or science or whatever is incredibly limiting, and it's just not truthful. Tracy sits down with CPRI director Jonathan Sapovitz to discuss her book, her new interview in Kappa Magazine, and her suggestions for teachers, researchers, and policymakers hoping to bridge the gap between brain science and education. That's right now on Research Minutes. This is Jonathan Sapovitz. Today... I have the privilege of being joined by Tracy Tokohama Espinosa, a veteran of the education field with more than 26 years of teaching, administrative, and educational research experience. Tracy has worked with schools and presented research in 28 countries across the globe and is currently affiliated with Flaxo in Quito, Ecuador. She teaches a course in neuroscience and learning at the Harvard University Extension School, and her new book, Neuromyths, Debunking False Ideas About the Brain, is now available nationwide. Tracy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for the invitation. So Tracy, your book packs a real punch. And as a matter of fact, the boxing glove is the metaphor that you use for debunking some of the myths about the brain. How did this project come about? Well, over the years, we've been looking at new ways to integrate better information from the learning sciences into general teacher education. And over and over and over again at different conferences that uh, involve people that are outside of the education field, other sciences have looked to educators and said, well, the number one thing you guys have to start with is getting rid of those myths. Um, there's far too many neuromyths that are circulated in the popular press or that are part of teacher conferences. And if you don't begin by first, you know, sweeping the stage, clearing things out, no matter how many good things you share with teachers, they'll get buried by the neuromyths. So um, the call had been out there a lot. There's about maybe 200 articles written over the past 30 years and a handful of books, but nobody really took it head on to go deeper into the research behind why people continue to believe in myths. And that's a whole nother conversation about why even faced with facts, people will still cling to certain ideas that they might have had earlier in their formation. And so the book was sort of born of this necessity of a lot of us waiting for something to come out that would just give us that first step in new teacher formation, which would introduce the brain in a way to teachers that they could actually relate to, but also give them more substantial information, things that they could really use in their practices in their classrooms. So a lot of people had written article here and article there, but nobody had tried to document all of the myths. And we find more than, than 70 are really prominent still in the popular press. And so trying to tackle them all, that hadn't been done before. 
I was amazed that the book and a lot of the things that you mentioned in the Kappen article are essentially a Encyclopedia Britannica of a slew of myths, and they're all so present in the beliefs that we have about teaching. I really appreciate the sophistication with which you take on some of these myths. So you certainly took on the myth that intelligence tests are measures of intelligence. Yeah, so and that's that? and the history of trying to figure out how we think. And this is the coolest thing, right? Humans are the only creatures on Earth that really think about how they think they think. And half the time, they might not be doing it correctly, but it's fascinating that we care so much about that. And that, you know, throughout history, we've always used things like language as proxies for intelligence, but you cannot measure precisely the global thing that is intelligence. And so this idea that I guess someone's famous once said, you know, intelligence tests really just measure what intelligence tests measure. So what they choose to measure, even if they're really complex, like some of the tests that we sort of explain in the book, as detailed as that might be, measuring hundreds of different ways that people express intelligence, it's not complete. It's just not complete. And I think the average teacher just knows this and sees this on a daily basis. You know, teachers do more experiments in a day than a neuroscientist will do in their whole life, right? And it does frustrate a lot of us who uh, then get judged by something as simplistic as a as a test that might last, you know, an hour, two or three or four, and then we're, we, we pass a judgment on whether or not that kid knows or understands or is intelligent. I think most of us really deeply appreciate that that's just not true and that there's a lot of limitations to these types of tests and that we need to be very, very careful. It's it's additional information. It's good to have, you know, sort of benchmarks on things. It's good to have relative measures of things. But to judge or determine or to categorize an individual and say, you know, your life is sort of going to be determined based on this is really a big stress point for, I think, a lot of teachers because they're trying to meet this demand for doing standardized tests and at the same time, they don't really believe in them. I don't know many teachers who, who you know, they'll test a standardized test score as far as they can throw it. They, they know it says something, but it doesn't say all that they know about their own kids. And so this big push for different types of assessments that are more representative of the things we value we, we talk a lot about soft skills, for example. You can't measure whether a kid is collaborative or creative in their thinking or that they're in solidarity with their classmates through a multiple choice test. And so uh, teachers appreciate that. And I think that they will like understanding the limitations of the test, but then they'll also appreciate the test for what they do test. And, you know, it's another piece of data, but it shouldn't limit the way we think about our students. Another area where you debunk a lot of myths is gender differences in either predilections or size of brain or whatever. What are some of the myths that you discovered around um, gender differences? Well, gender differences is so interesting because it really is a sign of intelligent speculation. You know, you look at people from the outside and you say, well, they look a little bit different from the outside, therefore their brains must be different on the inside. And that's that's a smart, you know, prediction but it's just wrong. If you look at the ways and abilities that individual humans have, nothing is really limited by gender. And I guess one of the easiest illustrations that I try to use when I when we talk with teachers, because if you have these Venn diagram, you know, these two circles, and if you say, well, you know what, there are more differences among all the women in the world and among all the men in the world than between men and women in the world. When you sort of express it like that, people will begin to understand 
Yes, there are differences, but they are not things that should mark you or should limit you. And this gets to the heart of all neural myths. Neural myths are bad because they break the first rule of education, which is the first rule of medicine, which is to do no harm. And so myths do harm. And telling people of a certain gender that they're not going to be as good at language or science or whatever based on their gender is incredibly limiting. And it's, and it's just not truthful. Some of the things that we share in the book have to do with these exceptional cases. Um, there's one study on school-aged children that shows some kind of a dominance for spatial abilities in young boys. But the really cool thing to see, to read into this, is that with a little bit of training, girls are actually equal or better than the boys in using that same network. And it doesn't mean that the outcome is different. It just means that the networks used were slightly different. It doesn't mean that one is superior, it's just slightly different. And it's good for teachers to know that they shouldn't project that onto kids because part of the idea of myths is that they do become self-perpetuating. Even if a teacher thinks they're treating the boys and the girls in the class the same, if the teacher believes this myth, he or she is actually treating students differently. There's a thing called social contagion where the students perceive this, even if the teacher tells you very explicitly, no, I treat all my students the same. But actually we see that there are differences in the way they interact based on the myths they believe in. So we have to get rid of myths for multiple reasons, but one of them is that it just defeats. We know one of the biggest indicators of a student's success is actually their own self-perception of a learner. I can learn. But if they receive a message from a teacher that because of their gender, for example, they're not going to be as good as somebody else, then they don't even try. So we have to be very, very careful about this. It's not only for our own good, but what we do to our students by believing those things explicitly or implicitly. So, it, you know, as I look across all the myths, it seems to me that a big takeaway here is that while there might be differences amongst individuals in neurological development or patterns, that largely the group differences are the things that seem to be mostly debunked. Mm -hmm. And um, for sure, we, we are confirming, you know, that there are no two brains that are identical. That's for sure, because your life experiences will actually change and shape different types of pathways. But globally speaking, brains are sort of as different as faces. We all have the same parts. But nobody has identical faces. And even identical looking twins don't have the same brains because experiences will sort of change things. So we can globally see, well, there's certain neural pathways that a kid would use to learn how to read or do math or whatever. But when you actually get down to the nitty gritty, they're not identical. None of them are identical. They tend to have the same hubs. So signals are passing through similar areas, but nobody's using identical pathways. And that's because what you know influences what you can know. So your past experience actually in a very dynamic way is radically interplaying with what you're newly learning. So what you know influences what you can know. So the more you know, the more you can know. So they are are going to be slightly different. On an individual basis, definitely, there's these very um, strong and, and unique abilities. But when we talk about these global differences between genders, for example, or, or certain age groups or things like that, it's very important to see that those things really narrow because the more studies you have, the more you see that we are so much more alike than we are different in the ways we go about things. So it's interesting because one of the really valuable things that I both experienced and can see helping teachers is that it takes things that were kind of implicit in your thinking and it makes them explicit. And in some ways that might be changing the neural pathways along which you have understanding about these particular things. Exactly. And, and that's even more challenging because we know, you know, the cognitive load, the energy it takes to learn something new is, is pretty significant, right? But 
imagine having to unlearn and then relearn. It's actually a whole lot of energy for a teacher to sort of own up to the fact that, you know, oof, there are no such thing as learning styles or right and left brain kids in my classroom. And if I let that go, I have to now replace that with something else. And that's sort of uncoupling that information and then relearning it in a different, more positive way is very, very heavy, which is why you'd think it'd be pretty quick uptake, right? You know, you put out the myths, this is it, and everybody would, you know, adapt. Um, I was just with a large group of counselors who, their school district had invested a lot of money in helping them understand, quote unquote, their kids' learning styles. And when you tell them, guess what, guys, everybody uses all of their modalities. In fact, the brain is desperate for as much information as it can possibly get from hearing and seeing and touching. And so telling somebody that you're an auditory learner, well, it makes them hone in on auditory cues, but it doesn't help them really. That's not what the brain would naturally do. Even if the teachers or the counselors learn this, it's so hard for them to let go because they themselves think that they figured out how they learn best because they know their style and they've been reconfirming this their whole life. And unfortunately, a lot of what people believe is true about how they think doesn't have the evidence behind it. So it's, it's not just a matter of putting out the facts. It's a matter of changing belief systems, which is a really heavy cognitive task. This might be an implication, but what does this say to you about how we might want to approach professional development a little bit differently? Well, number one, we get rid of the myths and then we share the few good things and we make sure that people understand how those might also be then changed by cultural context and then we suggest things. It's a different focus, but I think we're going through the same thing that the medical field went through 100 years ago where we're pushing ourselves to be more complex, but also just appreciating the organ of our existence as teachers is the brain, which is the most complex organism in the universe. And we have to sort of buy into that. We have to appreciate that that is a, a reality. And I think, I see, I feel that there's a real tipping point now. Um, just in the past five years, I've just seen a very big shift. Uh, I used to go to teacher conferences that did a lot of, you know, what should I do next? And then I began telling them I'm not coming again because it's not prescription and we're not ready to say what we should do. We need to know how. And I see a huge buy-in. And these days, people are actually celebrating that because the teacher professionalization is also shifting. They're adding more neuroscience and more technology. They say that our teachers need much more of this sort of background how and why information than the prescriptive what to do. And I see that shift occurring. I think that that's going to be a big part of new teacher training or new teacher formation in the future. And I would be remiss in not giving you a chance to talk about some of the very practical resources that you have either made available or that are part of the book. And you, you reference these in the Kappen articles. You have a set of principles around mm -hmm. mind and brain, which are just six principles. And then you have a set of tenets, which include 21 tenets. But you've also got some other guidance for teachers. Are there specific things that you want to mention? Sure. As I was uh, telling you before, one of the first steps is getting rid of the bad information. So that's like wiping out these myths, right? But then what replaces that or what should teachers really believe in? Because there's a lot of less than rigorous research being shared with teachers or a lot of half-truths. That's how neuromyths begin, right? You get a teeny bit of a truth and then it just sort of spirals out of control and then you, you get these myths about things. And so that's not what the research is really meant to say. That's not what the evidence says, but it ends up getting repeated so much that teachers will believe it. And so um, once we get rid of the myths, then 
The idea would be there are these six principles, things that are actually true for all human brains across the lifespan, and that's pretty amazing to get consensus. We got consensus from 41 experts in 11 different countries, educational neuroscientists. If teachers are going to learn about the brain, what should they learn? And they basically said these six things are incredibly valuable and they are pretty much enough to get things started. So, you know, that the brain is plastic throughout the lifespan or that all new learning depends on attention and memory or all learning passes through the filter of prior experience. Um, all of those basics there are things to be shared. And the tenets are also truths, but they have a huge range of human variants. So we might all believe and agree that, you know, motivation, for example, is important for learning. But what motivates you doesn't necessarily motivate me. And so thinking that teachers are, oh, I'm going to do a motivational activity is like, okay, for who? You know, understanding this range of human variants is very, very important. Those are the 21 tenets that are there. So. Um, I would say that that is the really big starting point. We talk about maybe these five steps. Number one, get rid of the myths. Number two, teach the principles. Number three, understand the tenets, um, which are a lot more complicated than they sound because they include things that are out of school. For example, the influence of sleep and dreaming on learning or nutritional implications, right? And then we should also understand the context. We're talking about the cultural structures that the learning takes place in because there are shifts and changes in some of the tenants based on that. And then after that, the fifth step would be, okay, now here's a great activity to do or here's a good methodology to apply. And so I would suggest that teacher formation is going to shift a lot more towards greater appreciation of the brain, number one, and then taking some of these steps to integrate the really good quality information into teacher practice. And I do see that with some really forward-looking schools around the world. I'd say that there's at least 30 schools now who have really embraced this new vision and all of their teachers are receiving this type of training and it does make a huge difference in student learning outcomes. That's, that's really, really promising. Tracy, I'm really curious about what you've learned about translating research into something that is easily understandable by practitioners. My original look at doing my, my doctoral work, I was trying to understand if there were standards in a field of mind-brain education science. And, and what I realized is that a lot of the world spends a lot of time looking at how the human brain learns, but very few groups were looking at how we should teach to take advantage of how the brain learns. And so you'd get a lot of very sensitive neuroscientists who would do all these activities and document, well, this is how we think the kid is learning. And then you say, great, so what would you do to maximize that potential there? And there's like zero on the radar of how to teach. And this very, very complex thing we do as, as human beings of teaching and this dynamic of understanding what they don't know so that we can fill in a little gap and then we advance a little bit further, but then we, you know, that kid has to consolidate some ideas and then we advance with another new teaching intervention. The teaching aspect is so, so complex. So this to me meant that there's a mutual translation that was necessary. The neuroscientists did not appreciate the complexities of teaching in a real classroom and teachers did not appreciate or, or really understand the brain. And now I see that there's a meeting of minds, if you will. People are really crossing this bridge and really seeing 
that there's a lot to be learned from all the learning sciences. One of the projects we've began to work on in Europe with the European Educational Research Association, the special interest group on the brain and learning is focused on creating a kind of a Craigslist <laughs> to join researchers and real classroom teachers and have this kind of meeting of the minds where they develop research projects together. It's actually bringing the lab and the classroom together and having those two people now become better learning scientists together. So the teacher learns about research and the researcher learns more about real messiness of real classrooms and teaching techniques. And this is a new and necessary type of professional. It's somebody who can really walk the border between neuroscience, psychology, and education and really understand enough about it that they can make an impact in, in real teaching and learning exchanges. Tracy, I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I want to leave by asking you about a myth that I kind of extrapolated out of reading the Kappen article, which is the myth that evidence changes people's minds. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the really interesting thing. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk in the news these days about implicit bias or things that people have inside their own heads. And when we get to this field of mind-brain education science, there's a sub-area called cultural neuroscience, for example, that sheds a lot of light on why people misread facial cues and emotional expressions on faces that don't look like their own at a much higher rate. People who look like us are easier to read and understand, right? And then when you know other things about, um, well, it's much easier to trigger fear in an individual than empathy. So we know certain basics, right? And then you start to understand why people would actually tend to fall into certain type of belief systems. And when you're told this is true about the brain, people latch on to a lot of things just because they aren't, or teachers are not trained typically in learning enough about the brain to debunk these myths themselves. I think, I like to believe in, in the positive side, I think most of us try our best to be as balanced and as true to the information as possible. But our main starting point for all reflection is our own prior experience. And if we've not been exposed to you know, rigorous research things or to people of a lot of different racial backgrounds or economic situations, if we've just been used to growing up in one way of thinking about things, it gets perpetuated. And that's really nobody's fault. It's just how your brain is. Your brain adapts to what it does most. Unless we can expand that and help teachers sort of grow beyond that, it's going to be very, very hard for us to attend to the needs of people who are different from us. This is kind of like the debate going on these days, you know, watch the other television channel tonight or something like that to sort of balance out your your worldview and then use your own good critical thinking skills to come to some conclusions unless we rehearse that over and over it's not a habituated process and humans like all other creatures we, we want the most for the least amount of effort and so if it served us on a tray this is the way the brain is and it sounds easy my message to teachers is that if it sounds too simple it probably is a myth and we just have to begin to love this complexity of the human brain. And once we begin on that path, I think we'll be able to be a lot more just with all the, all the different brains in our classrooms. Yeah, I think it brings together several of the things that you've been talking about, including the myth that we start with a blank slate when we start teaching that myth. Yeah. Um, the other myth that it's not a myth, it's actually a truism that it's more challenging to unlearn something and relearn it than it is to learn something the first time. So I think all of these things come into play when we think about how evidence might so easily change people's minds. Absolutely. Once again, Tracy, thanks so much for the chat. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon in Quito, Ecuador. And um, I'm really looking forward to your interview in the December issue of Cap'n Magazine. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. To learn more about today's topic, pick up the 2018 year-end issue of Cabin Magazine, titled What We've Learned About Learning, now available in print and online at cabinonline.org. For more episodes of this podcast or to subscribe to the series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's cprehub.org. To share your thoughts on today's episode or suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at cprehub. We look forward to you joining the conversation.